Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is John Pavlovitz, author, pastor, speaker, and author of Other Superpowers, a life-affirming, life-defending, butt-kicking, world-saving manifest. There's been a lot of talk lately about quitting Facebook or social media or media altogether, and it's tempting for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that sense of overwhelming helplessness and hopelessness when the news is just so, so depressing. John Pavlovitz fervently believes that people can change things for the better with a little guidance and lays out a path for doing so. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, is read by more than one million subscribers globally, and he has been featured on NPR. Welcome to the show, John. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, Captain. Uh, John, your book is, well, you say that your book is not a self-help book. And my question is, why isn't it and what makes it different? Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of um, self-awareness and examination and personal improvement that's a part of the book, but ultimately, the idea behind the book is that a life turned outward is actually the best version of ourselves, and so as we begin thinking about how to live compassionately toward the world, that's when uh, we kind of embrace the best part about being human. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things in there, life skills, um, but ultimately, it's about looking out at the world and saying, you know, what are the gaps in the world and how can I fill those gaps, whether they be in compassion or kindness or generosity and all those things. That makes it very different because it's true. In the self-help books, it's like things are so depressing and I feel so stressed out and we go on and on about ourselves and how it's difficult for us to exist in this this chaotic world. And yours is different because we're, you're saying we have to change the way we interact with the rest of the world or with other people, and then that changes things. We have to be more compassionate, more kind. Um, you, you use other descriptions, um, embrace equality. So how do we do all this? Well, I think, you know, it's important to start with maybe one thing where, you know, I ask people where the burden is for them. When they wake up in the morning, what kind of topic, what group of people, you know, where where are they sort of really passionate? And then that's the first place to begin. So you do that, you begin doing that by stepping out into your local community or you, you're online and you find a tribe of affinity there. But, you know, what's amazing is when you do that, when you step out and begin to actually do something tangible, that, you know, leads you to a group of people you would never meet otherwise. And you get different stories and you get different um, influences and experiences. And those things slowly redirect your path. So you, you kind of don't really know where you're headed. You just kind of, you need to begin at some point. I think a lot of people are just sort of paralyzed right now by how depressing things seem to be, how overwhelming it is. And then, but when you move, you realize how much power you actually have within your, your own life. And it seems sometimes we don't do that because we look to other people. We look to celebrities. We look to even religious leaders, politicians. We want them to solve the problem, and then we get discouraged when they don't. See, that's that's right. It's you know we put so much, uh, we invest so much hope in someone outside of ourselves. And, you know, sure, we want our leaders and we want people of influence to be responsible, but ultimately, you know, there is a great deal of the world that we have access to in our sort of circle of friends and our 
places where we work and our local communities. And so we do have, you know, more influence than we realize. Even with our social media, we can reach hundreds of maybe thousands of people every day with whatever message we want them to read or see. And I think we have a responsibility to do that. And when once you do that, you just there's an empowerment that happens there that I think most people are forget. Well, you talk about in your book, you identify 10 specific, and I'm going to quote, superpowers that ordinary people can draw on or employ to make their lives in the world at large a better place. What are these 10 superpowers? Describe them to us. Well, you've got, you've got things like compassion and kindness and generosity and humor and wonder um, and perseverance. So there's all these different um these different areas of our lives that we, we sort of forget that those are within us, that we have access to these things all the time. And it's really about sort of harnessing those things. You know, I, I started traveling the country last year asking people, what kind of person does the world need? And the responses were all of those things they were saying, people of honesty, people who are, who are kind, people who are compassionate. And so the book was really a response to the answers to those questions. You started to see how much commonality there are in people's responses, whether they are politically or theologically aligned. There are a lot of those inherent sort of base-level human things, and those are the places I'm asking people to, to re-examine or, you know, um, to dwell on. John, did you talk to Democrats? Did you talk what socioeconomic levels, educational? I mean, you said different religions. That was one of the things. But was there a whole, did you have a whole list of different kinds of people that you spoke to? Or if it was all throughout the whole country, obviously you were in different parts. But, yeah. Right. Well, these are questions that I asked, you know, in person at speaking events, but also online through the through the blog and through social media. So I was drawing upon, you know, a, a really disparate group of people all over the map in belief system and geographic location and socioeconomic status. And I, and so that's where the beauty of it, you know, you would see um, people who are conservative evangelicals and you'd see, you know, agnostic people just saying, hey, these are the same things. We may sort of label them differently or, or you know, package them differently, but really uh, there are so many uh, common so many affinities. And, um, you know, so part of the book and the work that I do is trying to get people to lean into those things and to be less tied to the, the sort of compartments they've already put themselves in. John, you're a leader. You're obviously you're a leader. Uh, you have a blog. You have a book. You're a pastor. How did we let's I, I want to backtrack a little because as a social worker, I'm always interested in how did we get here? How do we get to this point? And is it a unique point in history that we feel this way? We so feel, uh, we, you know, depressed or upset about what's happening and, and uh, divided in, in a country? Or is this just something that sort of is happens? It's a cyclical kind of thing that happens over time. Mm. And then we sort of get out of it. And yeah. Yeah, I think I think what you've seen is a, a couple things happening at the same time. So you've seen the sort of political landscape change. You've seen someone, um, you know, the current president who's who's kind of hasn't created anything. He's just, I think, uh, uncovered 
things about us that we we knew were there, but we didn't really want to deal with. And so there's sort of a bluntness to what he's done, which has sort of emboldened other people. And you combine that with a social media kind of explosion that makes us more aware than ever of everything that's happening all the time. So that influx of information, um, and then a lot of that information feels like bad news. And so I think you get a group of people like we are right now who feel inundated with with suffering and with discord in a way that maybe no one in our history has ever been, um, and so I think that's that's what it is. We we there's been a, rev- a revealing rather than just a creation of this, and now we're kind of dealing with the fallout. In other words, there's been a perfect storm given the context of where we are now with the explosion of well, this particular leader, the internet. Uh, access to all of this information and also don't you think this whole and maybe this is what you're saying this whole global I mean we are so connected globally so we do see everything that's happening everywhere on our planet and everybody has access to that maybe and it becomes an overload you know not that ignorance is bliss but we have we have to process all of this not just in our own backyard or in our own communities or even even in our own country and i think that exacerbates the whole problem too it really does i I do a workshop on compassion fatigue as i travel and one of the tips that i give people is to to be on social media so that they can be informed and find their tribes of affinity and connect people geographically um, doing the same work that they're doing. But then I remind them that they need to get off of social media because what it can do at its worst is sort of inflate the bad news and exponentially multiply it because we see a story and then we share that story and then that's retweeted by people and we get tagged in it. So we've seen the same you know, bit of bad news 30 or 40 times, and then you multiply that by other stories, you know, four or five of those, and you can easily, you know, create this um, this world where you don't even want to get out of bed because it feels like the tasks are at, your, at hand are insurmountable, and so I think social media can tend to do that and, and enlarge the, the problem, so I always ask people to try to step away from that and right-size what they're dealing with. Do you think we're more intrigued with the the bad stuff like it draws us in rather than the good stuff because it's all out there as you say i mean you can you have choices what you want to you know hone in on but there is something about the kind of the 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 stuff that's that's not necessarily um good for us but we we get hooked into it and then as you say we tell somebody else and it goes on and on and rather than honing in on things that we can do the positive stuff that's happening i don't i don't know if that's the human condition and we have to really work on it or or what well i think it's a product of just the the turbulence of the times because we found ourselves whether it was in you know presidential campaign or an election or the the fallout from the election we've all found ourselves in sort of a battle posture we're always sort of in a defensive place and you know i I call it living with a clenched fist we're sort of always ready for the fight and so when we get information like that it sort of feeds that kind of desire and a a lot of i think the it's important for us to step away to sort of recalibrate because that allows us to have a, a more we're looking we're scanning the horizon for other things rather than just um fuel for the debates and the fights you say, and I, I think this is very true, adversity, ours or others, is always an invitation to be transformed. Let's talk about that, adversity, because 
many people say, well, I try to keep things calm. I want, you know, medium cool. I don't want to be always yeah. having to deal with adversity, but it's, there's a real positive part of that. Well, well, there is. And, you know, we always see that retrospectively in our lives. We can always look back at those times of suffering or pain or failure and then realize that things were being, you know, created in us, that we were being renovated through that, but it's almost impossible to appreciate it in real time. And so, I, you know, through the book, I invite people to, to do just that, to really not only plot the moments of their lives, those sort of crossroads maps where they've seen growth happen in really difficult situations, but to trust that that's happening now, to look what's in front of them and say, yeah, there, there's, you know, I remember when my father died really suddenly, you know, three days after he passed, I was in a coffee shop with a friend and she said, you know, I know that you're grieving. I know that you're in pain right now, but I want you to remember that there's something else for you here, that this, that this situation is developing in you a layer of compassion, a level of empathy that you would never have otherwise. And you're going to be able to reach people who are grieving. You're going to speak their language. And as a caregiver, it's going to help people. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't want to hear any of that, but that, that turned out to be right, that um, I was able to speak the language of grief through, through what I'd been through, and that, that helped me reach people I would never otherwise reached. Yeah, and so in reading your book, I guess one thing is, I mean, you had this friend who was able to say that to you and help you maybe come to that awareness. Sometimes people don't always have that friend or that colleague or somebody who's going to be able to do that. So like You're reading right. a book like yours, it will make you, when those things happen, and it happens to all of us, no matter what it is, there's different, obviously, all kinds of adversity, can't get through life without it, but you'll be aware and I think that's really important. Okay, now what am I going to do? And um, you do that in the book. Give us examples in the book of, uh, you know, I mean, that was your own personal example, but uh, there are other examples uh, of, of people and real-life people. Um, talk to us about them and in, co in the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I think uh, of a woman named Amy Copeland, and I tell Amy's story. Uh, she was... Um, riding a, a sort of a homemade zip line and, and fell and she, you know, really damaged her leg. But then the, the leg damage, she had kind of fallen into water and, and she um, was, her body was infiltrated by flesh eating bacteria and it took all of her extremities. And she tells a story about sort of waking up in the hospital in this really drug induced haze and seeing her father ask for her permission to sort of have those limbs amputated. And she said in that moment, she said, I would have done anything to be alive. She said, I would have just been a head in a jar. I just wanted to stay. And, and, and when she stayed, you know, when she began to recover, she, she found herself having this sort of gratitude for life that she never had, but she also decided, you know, what can I do with this? And she saw just how this was sort of pregnant with this um, possibility. And she's gone on to just do really beautiful, life-affirming work. And specifically, she's been able to marry her sort of love of outdoors and sports and all this with what it's like to live with um, a disability. And so she's, you know, created a foundation. And it's so those are the kind of things that are just amazing to me. People who experience the most tragic situations and yet in that moment that's where the the this beautiful thing is born it's really uh it's counterintuitive to think about it sometimes well that story is the extreme and it does it always amazes me that people are able to do what they do after something like that tragedy what about 
just sort of stuff that's in the middle, though, that we get stuck in, you know, a divorce, uh, yeah. you know, maybe children, you know, stuff like that, that ha- or you lose your job or, you know, or, I mean, there's a whole list of those kinds of things, right? Um, how do we deal with those situations? Well, I think part of it is, you know, we get so sort of married to our story, to the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and about what our life is going to look like for the next 15 and 20 years. And when we find ourselves in those places where we're dealing with a relationship crisis or, you know, a financial um, disaster of sorts um, or some sort of relational problem in our family, we just have to reevaluate our story we have to sort of hold it loosely again but really i think that those are those moments when we when we decide okay i'm the story is not over yet so i'm just gonna have to keep walking in this thing i remember i was i was fired from a, a job a couple of years ago and realizing all the things that i was terrified by all that newness and all the those sort of loss and identity were actually opportunities for me. And that those were places to jump off of. Those questions turned rather than from fearful questions to sort of expectancy. And I think that's the part about it that we have to channel. We know, how do we view this thing as, as just a, a failure or is it just, um, is it a landing pad or a launching pad for us, really? Where do you think your strength came from, comes from? Uh, well, I try to I try to spend a lot of time hearing people's stories, and I when when they share, you know, as a pastor for 23 years, I've lived alongside people. They've given me access to their lives. They've given I've had a front row seat to, you know, the deepest things that people feel and and deal with, and those things give me strength because I see just just how similar we are and how difficult life is for everyone. I think having that compassion is really um, the the key for me because it allows me to to care deeply about the people around me and um and i just don't think there's any other way to live what made you decide you said you've been a pastor for 20 years what made you decide to take that path and decide to become a pastor what in your background in your history well, I grew up Catholic and Roman Catholic, but then, you know, drifted from that in, like, my college years and sort of pulled back to a, a church to be married um, and this little country, this little Methodist chapel outside of Philadelphia and just started working with teenagers, just started spending some time with them. And really, that was just pulled me slowly into this completely different path. And that's another thing I, I share in the book. I talk to people about all the time. You know, I had a plan A, I was working plan A, it was really great, but then plan B sort of showed up, and I just ended up, um, you know, a couple years later, jumping from this career that I had planned on being a part of my whole life, and life redirected itself. And I, and I, looking back, I mean, it's, that's been beautiful, because I would have never been able to forecast or engineer all this. It's just things that happen as I, as I woke up every day trying to make the wisest decision I could. But you have to be open to plan B, don't you? Some people get really stuck in that plan A and won't let go of it, even when the, the world is telling them, hey, this isn't working. Uh, it's time right. to, to, you know, re Yeah, and I think that's one of the real difficult things for, I guess, many of us to do. Be able to go, because there is a plan B and there's a plan C. Actually, there could be lots of different plans that lead you in good places. Um, but... And especially, I think another piece of this, we live so long. So, you know, we have these plans that are whatever they are. Uh, Is this going to be a plan for the next 70 years? I mean, think about it, right? 
Well, you know, plan B was okay for me because I was sort of choosing that. I mean, it felt good. It was a good, the circumstances were favorable, but, you know, getting fired, that was, that was like plan Q. And that was a time when I was just not ready for that change. I remember my pastor saying to me at an event, sitting at a, you know, around a fire saying, Hey, you're going to retire at this church, from this church. And I, I didn't, he was right. It was just uh, four weeks later, you know? And so it's those times when you get surprised by those changes and they don't feel good in the moment is to trust that you can still mine something positive out of them. Do you think, and maybe this is a little off topic, but I don't think so, like do you think the churches are evolving as well in terms of their plan A and plan B, that you don't have your pastor or, or, or your priest or your rabbi up there preaching to you about what you should or should not do, but their role has evolved, and I'm saying in a good way? I think for some of them it has. I think more what it's done is I think people individually are finding spiritual community outside of those places if they're not if they're not receiving messages that are that are a group of people evolving then they are leaving and stepping out and finding that elsewhere i mean that for me has the the, the exponential growth of the blog had nothing to do with my writing improving over three months four months time it was just this, people were asking the same questions and feeling the same frustrations. So I think that's happening. It's just happening in really a non-traditional sense as much as within a building on a Sunday morning. We're getting away from that brick and mortar like we are in the malls as well as in the churches or the synagogues. Uh, Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great, that's a good thing. So we, we, um, I mean, that's some of this. That obviously, that's your your blog, the opportunity to be online and and get you know the same similar kinds of information, which I think is really, it's exciting actually. I I mean, it it really it it changes everything. I mean, do you think? But not everybody has those same kinds of opportunities, right? I'm thinking about globally. I mean, you you're you you're what did I say? You you're one. You have one million subscribers globally on your blog listen to you yeah well yeah i'll get i'll get about a million million and a half readers a month on the blog and so those are all these different groups of people and and that's true you know for me i wrote a blog post called if i have gay children and it went viral right after i was fired and and you know i always remind people the next day after writing that blog post it had reached millions of people i'm on cnn and underneath it says john pavlovitz pastor and it could have easily said unemployed, unemployed, and currently despondent. You know, it could. Have, I. Yeah. <laughs> the reality was that I had really nothing objectively that looked positive in my life. But I released those words that were written from a very personal place, and with no capital behind it, no marketing campaign, and they just found a way to reach people. And so that may not happen with everyone, but the same impulse is there to say, what What is your story? What is What is your voice? And what do you have to say? And because we all have. We, I think we've lived within our stories so long, we forget how powerful they are. We've gotten used to the sound of our own voices, so we forget their resonance. And so that's what I encourage people to do. Share your story, use your voice. Share your story, use your voice. And there also is a p- piece that I think, don't you think that you one has to be vulnerable, allow yourself to be vulnerable? I'm not sure how vulnerable, but I think that has changed and evolved over the generations. If you take two generations ago, people were not supposed to talk about personal things. You kept things to yourself and within the family. Then the next generation, the baby boomers, obviously there was more openness and more ability to connect. And now even these next, you know, the millennials, Gen X, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, but they seem to share everything. 
Um, but I, the word vulnerability comes to mind, how vulnerable one can be or how one um, yeah. you have to. Yeah. I think there's a challenge too in that. Like you, you, we want, we have learned to become a sort of an inside out people. We share everything with everyone on social media. And to some degree, that's, that's, that's the beautiful part of this, but it's also, there's a challenge to save some of our lives just for the people that we live with. So that's a balance as someone in the, in the sort of public sphere that I'm always kind of trying to pay attention to. Do I have some of my life with my family that's just for them? Do I have experiences that I don't need to Instagram or share on the blog? And so that's a, that's a challenge for sure. Yeah, that is a challenge. That's a, that's kind of a challenge in this new world order. Um, we only have a few minutes left. We have about three minutes left. So what do we want to tell everybody? It's fascinating. Your book is, a, I mean, people, uh, I want to mention the book again, Hope and Other Superpowers, A Life-Affirming love defending butt kicking world saving manifest what's the response you've gotten from the book so far i know it just came oh, it's, out it's it's been fantastic i have actually been on the road continually from the first book which i wrote called a bigger table i wrote that over a little over a year ago and so i have really not stopped traveling and so it's been wonderful just to um this book in particular it's it's People are sharing, I'm sharing other people's stories and then encouraging people to share theirs. And it's really just, there's a, there's just a positivity to those experiences. When I gather in a new city and people tell me the stories of how the books are encouraging them, but also saying, and this is what it's led me to do. This is a place I'm finding myself, which is the whole point. The whole point is to keep making sure we're out there being compassionate, being loud in the cause of of love and the cause of things that are beautiful rather than just letting the loud people speak for us. Loud in the cause of love. I like that expression. That's really good. I haven't heard that loud in the cause of love. That's what we do have to do. Um, so what website can we, I mean, besides reading your blog, reading the book, uh, what any other websites we could go to to find out more about you and what you are doing and what you do do yeah everything is on john com, and that's p-a-v-l-o-v-i-t-z or you can just google stuff that needs to be said and the blog will come up and um, on facebook and instagram and twitter and all those things you know connect to one another so really um love the idea of facebook is a powerful place where a lot of people are gathering to have extended conversations and I hope though, people will do that there because that's what it's about. It's not just about reading something that someone writes. It's about being in relationship with people and working this out, what it looks like for you. But don't quit Facebook or social media or media altogether. Is that <laughs> yeah, the message? Yeah, let's hope not because that's how, yeah. how I do what I do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get discouraged. Well, hopefully after our conversation, they won't get discouraged and they'll go buy your book, listen to your blog. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Oh, I'm grateful for the time, Catherine. Thanks so much. Thank you. John Pavlovich, author, pastor, speaker, and author of Hope and Other Superpowers. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Peter Ludwig, author, entrepreneur, and consultant. His new book is The End of Procrastination, How to Stop Postponing and Live a Fulfilled Life. Even with overflowing inboxes, thousands of unread notifications, and unmet deadlines, most people still can't manage to take control of their time and stop procrastinating. Peter Ludwig tackles this ubiquitous issue head-on, helping you stop putting off work and reclaim your time. He shows that ending procrastination is more than a wise time management strategy. It's essential to developing a sense of purpose and leading a happier, more fulfilled life. Uh, Peter Ludwig is a science popularizer, entrepreneur, and consultant for Fortune 500 companies in Europe. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Peter. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Okay. Well, the end of procrastination, many of us think, you know, I procrastinate, I'm lazy, I just can't get off the couch, what do I do? But obviously in your book you point out that it is much more than that. Procrastination is not just laziness. There's a lot more to it. So let's start. What is procrastination? Yeah, the procrastination has uh, two main causes. Like the first um, main causes is the lack of motivation, lack of uh, purpose in uh, what we do. For example, these days a lot of people are working on something and they has uh, they see no meaning in uh, what they do. So uh, the first cause is lack of a purpose, both uh, at work or in life in general. 
And the second cause is uh, lack of willpower. Like we know what to do, but we cannot uh, force ourselves to really start with something. So it's a problem of what science calls self-regulation. Like um, the problem with that we know what to do, but we are unable to really start with that. And uh, let's start with uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) I I really like (laughs) a quote uh, that is old Japanese proverb. And it follows like vision without action is a daydream and action without a vision is a nightmare. And it really summarizes those two concepts together. Like we need both. We, we need um, like personal vision, know what to do, see purpose in what we do. And we uh, need action, like the willpower to start. Okay, let's start with that. Well, let's start with the first thing that you said in the context of, of, uh, of that quote, lack of motivation. Uh, we're, we aren't motivated because there's no meaning in what we do. Let's talk about that. Exactly. Like people don't want to get up in the morning and go to their job and do their routine. Uh, and you're saying the reason is because there's really no meaning. They're not really passionate about what they do. Uh, exactly. So that affects now, your mode. Yeah. Uh, there is a psychological concept of uh, being in a state of flow. And it means that you do something. Uh, and uh, you see purpose in what you do, and in that moment, time stops for you, and you really enjoy what you are doing. And uh, it's it's just like exact opposite of procrastination. Yeah, you you have energy, uh, you are constantly improving yourself, and so on. And this moment uh, is uh, called state of flow, and uh, you need to like deploy deploy your strengths into it. So it's very important to find your strengths and do something that is not pure, purely selfish and to find uh, a purpose of what you do. So it doesn't uh, need to be like, uh, you, you don't need to uh, go somewhere and uh, save millions of lives, but uh, what is important to do something uh, that is like a bit beyond you, like uh, doing something uh, with some greater meaning. And you can find this uh, in all, all kinds of uh, jobs days, like uh, not just to be purely selfish, not focus just on money, but uh, focus on relationships, focus on uh, to improving uh, the uh, surroundings of us and so on and so on. So it's very important to not to be just purely selfish and find a meaning and purpose in what we do. And hopefully we can do that. Not, I don't think necessarily that everybody has the same opportunities to do that perhaps they have to stay at a job that not that they're greedy and they want to make lots of money but they have to make enough money to support their family so what do you do in those kinds of cases how do you make it more interesting let's say you have a job that's mm, not horrible but it's really you do not really want to get up in the morning but you do so that you can earn yeah, money exactly. are you uh, yeah I really love uh, one Japanese concept. They call it Ikigai. It's a concept from island of Okinawa. And Okinawa is famous for the fact that uh, they have the longest uh, lifespan around the globe. They really live uh, 10 to 15 years longer than uh, we do. And uh, they made a very uh, long-term research on the reasons why. And the reason was the concept of Ikigai. And uh, they described it that you do something that you are good at, you, you do something that uh, is meaningful for you, and you uh, get uh, paid for that. So, like, money is important, but not, uh, it's like one part of, of, of the concept. So, of course, if we don't have the money to uh, feed ourselves, to feed our, um, our 
our, our kids and so on. So it's, it's, it's difficult, but uh, only focus on money. That's the problem. Yeah? So money is important, but only to some, uh, it's, it's just a part of, part of it. And uh, there is a lot of research on how money influence our happiness and uh, money influence our happiness to the certain point. Uh, if we have no money, that's the problem. Then uh, more money we have, more ha- happy we are. And in one moment, it stops. Uh, from uh, one point, money has no more impact on our happiness. So, uh, I mean, like, it's, it's important, but uh, we should focus on the uh, other, other parts, too. Like, uh, find our strengths and try to deploy them on an everyday basis and uh, try to do something more meaningful. And uh, in Okinawa, I was there like, you know, one year ago, and you really see that uh, people, even if they're doing like quite normal jobs, they really enjoy to do that. So you, you meet uh, very happy people everywhere, and that's the reason why they live uh, 10 to 15 years long, longer than uh, we, we do. So, in other words, these this this group of people uh, do they call that the blue zones? There are blue zones around yeah, the world. Exactly. That yeah. being one of them. Yeah, exactly. Where okay, now it's one of those blue to zones. To be ninety hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want to get into our own blue zone. That's what you're saying, I guess. Uh, yeah, and, exactly, exactly. And and you have yeah, uh, and and cons- and. I think that thing you said about, and obviously that's in the book, but finding your strengths. I mean, sometimes we don't do that. As you say, we just take, you know, we go to school and go to college and find a job and really don't think about what our passion and what our strengths are and where that's going to lead us or that we have choices, like is what you're saying. Exactly. We have choices no. to, to no. yeah. But what is this I, when you talk about decision? Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think the main reason of uh, that is uh, that, we are mostly driven by uh, extrinsic motivation. Like uh, we we do things, but we do them because uh, someone um, like w- wants us to do that. Like we don't do it because we want to do that. So it, there's a main difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And there is a huge meta analysis that shows us that uh, intrinsic motivation works much much better in long term. So. Um, and it's about to finding your passion, finding your strengths, and really uh, do choices by yourself, not uh, because of the others. What do you, when you refer to decision paralysis, what is that? Uh, decision paralysis is a key concept because we live in the world of, uh, that is full of distractions. We have social media and we have uh, so many choices these days. Like even if you go shopping, you can uh, find like 50 kinds of toothbrushes and so on. And uh, our ancestors, they thought that more choices we have, more, more uh, happy we are. And that's not truth. Yeah. That's the problem because uh, more choices we have, more difficult to, is to choose at all. So sometimes you are paralyzed by uh, that many choices. And it's one of the main that, I have to tell you, of Pete, procrastination. Pete. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that happened to me actually just a couple of days ago in the grocery store, and try. I was looking for a dishwashing liquid, and I go into and there's 40 different kinds, and 40, I was with yeah, my exactly. partner and my boyfriend, and I said, I just I'm just pick one. I mean, because we he started saying which one do you want, and then I started to, I went and I said, you know what, just 
pick one of them. I don't want to stand here for 10 minutes trying to pick out dishwashing liquid. It's just not worth it. And uh, that, But that, that was decision paralysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you are not happy that you can choose uh, out of forty, but you uh, feel a little anxiety that you are unable to choose at all. And we experience this in all, all fields of our life. Yeah, we experience this um, if we open our mailbox, and uh, it's full of emails, and it's difficult to choose uh, which is the best email to start. Then we have decision paralysis uh, in certain priorities. Uh, at work, and even some people have a decision paralysis in uh, choosing a life partner uh, to choose uh, like um, what uh, what to study and so on and so on. So um, this, these days we live in a world that is very complex and very chaotic, but we have the same brain as uh, the ancient uh, Greece, the people in ancient Greece had. So uh, and that's the problem because the complexity of the world is so much much higher, much bigger, and so, but the brain is the same. It, it was uh, 2,000 years ago. So decision paralysis is really the problem, and that's why um, me personally, I really like minimalism. Like, I loved minimalism even before it was cool, <laughs> and I think it's the only way how to survive in these complex uh, surroundings. Like, and I, I think that's true, and I think that's one of the things that I focused in on your book. You talk about how to how we can increase our efficiency. I mean, learn new habits exactly, and yeah. unlearn yeah. the bad ones. And I think that that's true. That that uh, ability to be more of a minimalist. So after my experience in the grocery store, I actually came home and got rid of everything in my in in my house. Not literally, but I decided <laughs> I. It's much easier to function, to wake up in the morning, to know where everything is, to be able to, if you have to run out of the house or you, you don't, you're not searching for, you know, you've got so much stuff to deal with. Um, and I think that applies at work as well. And so, yeah, we want to become more efficient. Um, how how yes. can we? Yeah, well, how can we? Well, it's it, it needs a <laughs> bit of courage because uh, sometimes it, it means that you uh, have to say no to someone. And sometimes minimalism is about to uh, get rid um, of some stuff that you don't like, you don't want. So it needs courage, I think. And um, I think that minimalism is, uh, is a about values, yeah, because uh, for me, simplicity is one of core values of my life and uh, of my work, because I love the quote, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I try to write the book that is really minimalist, like only core ideas, not long stories, only core ideas, but based in science. So for my work, simplicity is really important, but uh, I'm trying to deploy it uh, in my everyday life, like less stuff I have, more happier I am, uh, less priorities I have, more I'm capable to really fulfill those, those priorities. So minimalism is, I think, about uh, personal values. So uh, my advice is to start to really like minimalism, to re- really appreciate things that are simple, like not only design, uh, by design, but um, by, by uh, like, uh, way of like thinking. Uh, that's why I love Japan. I, I spent last six years, I spent uh, one month uh, every year in Japan and I love Kyoto. Kyoto is, is a beautiful city, but very minimalist. Like if you are in a temple in Kyoto, there is literally like nothing. And it's, it's very simple 
and you really feel feel good. And then you are able to have the same, for example, in your flat, in your office, and so on. So deploying minimalism is like everyday, everyday challenge. You need courage, but uh, you re- really need to fall in love with simplicity. Yeah, I'm thinking about I, I was in Japan many, many years ago, but I was, as you're talking and you're describing, for instance, say a Shinto shrine, which is just like uh-huh. a very simple design as opposed to even, you know, the Judeo-Christian ornate churches uh, or synagogues, um, very different ways of, of, I guess, expressing one's religion. That's, that's, uh, um, how do you, you talk about this in your book too, um, how to manage your own failures better and how to, well, we've, we've touched on this and how to overcome the fear of change, but how do we manage our own failures better? Yeah, um, I think that one of the key concepts of uh, how to deal uh, better with failures is, is not to com- compare with the others, like... Uh, that's the problem of social media these days because everyone is comparing to the to the others. And there was a research on that that uh, Instagram is the worst because uh, you know um, you can compare every day, and you always find someone who has a, like better life than you, you do, like uh, who has a bigger car, who, who uh, has a big uh, better um, holidays, and so on. And um, and people are unable to to fail because uh, for them they see that the, the others they have just perfect lives through the social media. No one shares like almost no one shares failures on uh, social media, and people then uh, think that failure is something really bad, and uh, they are unable to take it as a part of the journey. And what I teach is that failure is a part of the journey. Like if you fail, you learn something new, and if you fail, it's just normal. Yeah, everyone fails. So I encourage people to share failures and to take them as a as a normal part of the life. But of course, uh, if you fail, and it uh, doesn't mean that you uh, wanted to do that. Like uh, it's important that if it happens, you just uh, do like restart, like and start again. And uh, what is really important is that um, y- you don't need to uh, m- label you as a uh, as a loser or as a failure. It's it's just the normal. You know, you, everyone fails. So um, so if it, Peter, well, if failure uh, is a if fa- failure is a part of everyone's journey, as you say. Yeah, what about you? Exactly, what would yeah. you say was one of the biggest challenges or failures that you've had and that you've been able to learn from, uh, go on? Yes, and, um, yeah. I, I shared one, uh, one of my core stories uh, in the beginning of the book because uh, 14 years ago I had a, a, a medical, medical situation that uh, I was playing basketball and uh, I start to feel something very, very, very unpleasant in my right hand, and at the end, like after a few hours, uh, half of my body was completely paralyzed, and that was the. For me, it was still. Uh, it is still one of the strongest moments of my whole life, and in that moment, I was uh, facing my 
own that. Uh, they call it near-death experience because part of people, they survive this, part of people, they don't. And I didn't know in uh, what group I am. But for me, it was one of the strongest moments of my life. Luckily, I survived if any, any side effects if, uh, without any, any side harms. But, but for me, it was um, the, the toughest moment of my whole life. And from that, um, I learned a lot of uh, important lessons. Like for me, it was, it was one of the strongest moments, but one of the most important moments uh, too, because since then, uh, I really considered differently the value of time. Like uh, for me, every new day is like a bonus day. Like, uh, and now I'm trying to focus to live really uh, without procrastination because procrastination is the main enemy to live uh, the life to the fullest. So um, since then, uh, a lot of changed in my life and it was, it was tough. I don't want to anyone to have the same experience, but it, it was uh, best Mm, it was the best teacher. It was a. It was for my work. It, it was very important moment. So sometimes, if you uh, fail or if you experience something very unpleasant, it can really change you in a positive manner. Yeah. Do you, Peter, before you, that, you were you really someone who? Rethink, it's important. Uh, to I was going to ask. Like, uh-huh. you, you did rethink it, and you had a. Um, you know, obviously a traumatic, really a very traumatic experience. But before that, were you the kind of person who you were a procrastinator? You weren't living life to the fullest. You weren't of aware course, of all the strengths of that you had. Yeah. That took that kind of a trauma to change you. I or, think that before yeah. that, I just ignored the fact that we were going to die because uh, you, you don't want to think about it, so you you just uh, don't think about that. So, but if you experience something like like uh, near death experience, you really see that death is is there, and uh, it's not scary. It's a bit sad. Like uh, you feel okay, going to 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 end. But uh, if you have another chance to uh, let's say live again, you try to live much better. Like you really want to enjoy every day, and you really want to do things that are meaningful. So I think that my experience uh, really changed me, and I think that that experience was one of the main reasons I wrote my book, because the book is about helping people to find uh, their like, personal vision, to find what they want to do, and find the willpower to really start, to do change in their life, and to really enjoy uh, every day to the fullest. So for me, it, it was a uh, so important moment, and uh, without that, my life would be very different. Well, I would hope that all of us don't necessarily have to go through like the medical trauma that you went through. I mean, we all go through failures, and I think I touched on this even with my last guest, that we lose a job or we have other circumstances that we view as failures, not necessarily a near-death experience, but we still even taking those failures, you're saying, maybe failure isn't a good word. Maybe we have to sort of redefine that, that it's not necessarily exactly. a failure. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So It's a situation, and you can learn something from that situation, and failure is, is just, a, it's, it's, it's not the best uh, name of the situation, because uh, failure, it has negative uh, wise inside, so we should uh, like rebrand it 
Yeah, well, you should be the person to rebrand, rebrand it. You wrote the book. Okay. <laughs> you're the, okay. The next you're the person to, <laughs> in your next book, the title can be Rebranding Failure, if there, if there isn't exactly. a, already a title. That's a great yeah. idea. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's a, <laughs> so, okay, well, we have a, we have about three minutes left. So, what more should, what website should we go to? Or are there any other websites or websites? Uh, your websites to know what you're doing and what books you're reading, so we'll know about this next book when you write it. Um, this book is The End of Procrastination, How to Stop Postponing and Live a Fulfilled Life. But um, So where do we go to find out more info? Yeah. Uh, our webpage is very simple. It's procrastination.com. So we, we have .com domain with the name of uh, the phenomenon procrastination. So for us, it's, it's great because everyone... <laughs> can remember that, so <laughs> procrastination.com, and you can find uh, uh, other links there, like uh, all my social media, it's at B-E-T-R-L-U-D-W-I-G, Peter Ludwig, and uh, you can follow us, and um, yeah, I, I have a plan to write another book, but these days, this book is uh, out, so uh, for me, it's, it's just amazing, the book has 10 translations, and I moved to New York because of the book, so... Uh, for me, I'm living a little dream now, so <laughs> you can follow me on social media and see some like personal uh, details of my life. Well, okay, that's my last question. So you're talking about how on social media, particularly you said Instagram, people are looking at Instagram and feeling jealous and upset and because they're not living the life that they see everybody living. So on your social media, is it all the good stuff, or do you share some of the kind of nasty stuff with us, or are we going to look at your websites and your social media and say, yeah. oh, you know, makes me feel bad because I'm not doing that. Yeah. For me, like Instagram is more about uh, photos because I love to take uh, beautiful pictures here in New York. So it, it's it's not uh, about me. It's more about what I do. So and I'm, I I'm install all other social media uh, in my cell phone. So I only use Instagram these days. I uninstall Facebook, I uninstall LinkedIn, Twitter, because uh, I had a decision paralysis what to use. So now I use only Instagram on my cell phone and on my desktop, uh, I use the other social media. So, uh, but I try to uh, spend only only like a half an hour daily on social media, not more, because it, it's, it's a big addiction and uh, you don't want to uh, spend a whole uh, day on social media if you are experiencing procrastination. It, it, it <laughs> yeah, not a good idea. Peter, Peter Ludwig, idea. thanks so much for being on the show today. The End of Procrastination, How to Stop Postponing and Live a Fulfilled Life. Uh, thanks so Thank much. You, Great talking Thank to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding... 